And he was describing what happened that afternoon in regard to Building 7. He said, what happened, and I quote him word for word in the book, and you can see it on the internet, you see the clip. He said, what happened was, the fire commander came to me and said that Building 7 was unstable. And Silverstein, uh, who made a fortune out of the insurance payout, uh, said, well, you know, there's been such a loss of life that let's just pull it. Means control demolition, the building. And he said, and then we sat there later in the afternoon and we watched the building come down. One, that fire commander has never come forward and said, yes, we had that conversation, never happened. Uh, and secondly, there's this little matter. First of all, um, fire officers do not control demolish buildings, experts do. And secondly, it takes weeks to put the charges in the right places within a building the size of Building 7 for the building to be made to fall on its own footprint in a controlled demolition, which is exactly what Building 7 did. So, first of all, building experts say it's a controlled demolition. And secondly, um, the uh, Silverstein said it is, and describes a story of how it came down, which is absolutely impossible. And I would say this to the mainstream media. Why does it take people like me to ask those questions? Why haven't you asked questions about the blatantly bloody obvious in regard to that alone in the last 18 years? So, Building 7 was a lie of massive proportions. Then you look at the Twin Towers. The Twin Towers fell in free fall speed. A mean figure of about 10 seconds. And for some, see, the official story is that the towers fell because the weight of the falling debris above was pancaking and, and, and collapsing the building below. Well, hold on a minute. You know, I, I didn't go to a good school, but I am able to work out that when something pancakes, there's resistance. So how did both towers fall in free fall speed? Because all the resistance below had gone before the the, the debris above actually um, was able to strike it. And, but that's not a problem. Not a problem. What you do, Brian, is you, uh, you get experts in, building experts, you get them to look through the steel and the, the rubble, and they'll tell you what brought the building down. If there were charges in the building, they will be able to find that. So it's no problem, except the man in overall charge of the criminal investigation into 9-11 was a guy called Michael Shertoff, a rabid ultra-Zionist extremist who oversaw the whole criminal investigation. In the um, hierarchy underneath him, um, the decision was made to clear the World Trade Center site as fast as possible of the rubble and the steel in both the Twin Towers and Building 7 and take it to um, two um, scrap yards in 
New Jersey, the New York area. The rubble was taken away by an ultra-Zionist controlled company and they used GPS tracking for the trucks because they said the uh, contents is so sensitive. Sensitive? When they got it to the scrapyards owned by ultra-Zionist companies, they um, cut it up, cut the steel up immediately into short lengths, put them on ships and shipped them out to Asia for smelting to become someone's fridge. And um, the uh, New York Times, I quote it in the book, it's when, when you, you mentioned, Brian, the, uh, the people who died and, and the people who lost loved ones left behind, who I, I dedicate the book to. Tell me, tell me what this means in terms of contempt for those people. The engineers and people that were seeking to investigate how the towers came down, all three of them, were outraged that the evidence was taken away so fast, as it was, by the way, with the Oklahoma bombing in, um, in, uh, of the Murrah building in uh, 1995. Um, and this New York Times article describes this scene. In one of these scrapyards in New Jersey, where the, the rubble is piled up and steel is piled up, ready for cutting and sending to Asia, Big grabbers are coming down, picking it up, moving it around. Um, this New York Times article describes how engineers and people investigating what happened on 9-11 to the buildings were waiting for the diggers to, to pull away and they were running into the rubble and looking to see um, what uh, they could find in terms of evidence that would be useful and then they would run back off for another one coming down. If ever I have described total contempt for the victims both living with it and those who died on 9-11, then that scene is it. So why would a government military intelligence network not make 9-11 the most painstaking, thorough, investigation into any a terrorist attack in human history given what you've very brilliantly described in terms of how people were affected by that instead they want to rush away get the evidence out of the way so experts can't establish with on without doubt with beyond doubt how those buildings came down. Same blueprint for COVID-19, same blueprint. And every area of 9-11 um, has this theme of contempt for those who died and loved ones left behind and um, efforts to hide the truth of what happened. I mean, how about this? There's a few firsts in 9-11, a few never happened befores, including the suspension of the laws of physics, by the way. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's an air crash of any kind, the um, investigators 
established established the nature and proof of the nature and identity of the plane or planes. And they do this very simply with every crash. They take the parts they found and everyone has a serial number. What? Okay. They then check the maintenance logs of the plane, which every time a part is, is changed, and there's some called time change parts, which have to be changed in a period, whether they, they, they're damaged or not, or worn or not, they have to be changed. And they see that the maintenance log code for that part and the code on the part found at the crash are the same. Every crash does that, because then they know, yes, the, the identity of the plane. On 9-11, to this day, that has never been done. They have never established in the simplest way possible that um, those four planes that left the airports were the ones that hit the building and crashed in Pennsylvania. And I know this for a fact because the FBI had to admit it. There was a Freedom of Information Act request for the documentation showing that that was done to prove that the planes that left the airports were the ones that crashed. And the FBI replied, that was never done, and the reason why is the identity of the planes was never in doubt. When you read the book, you'll find that the identity of those planes was absolutely fundamentally in doubt um, in terms of whether they were the same planes, I said that they weren't. How about this? Every time there is a hijack, the first thing a pilot has to do is punch in a four-digit code immediately. It takes that long. And on the ground, they realize there's a hijack. Yeah. Happens every time, except on 9-11. None of those pilots on those four planes, none of them punched in the hijack code that day. Like I say, there's, it's never happened before, it's all over this story. And in uh, every aspect, and every area you look at, the, uh, the house of cards comes falling down. And I just repeat again, before I just finish this point. If I can do it, then the mainstream media have been able to do it worldwide for the last 18 years. Why haven't they? Why haven't they? Because they're supported by advertising and the Defense Department, and they don't want to rock the boat. Well, uh, the, the greatest form and the worst and most insidious form of censorship is self-censorship, where you know you mustn't cross that line or there's going to be problems. And of course, you can have journalists who, not many in the mainstream, it seems to me, who, who, who would like to ask questions, but what goes in the newspapers, what goes on the news bulletin is decided by those that run the organization, not by individual journalists. Um, and so you have a situation where a house of cards that is so blatantly a pack of lies has gone uninvestigated and unchallenged by the mainstream media for 18 years. And that is another insult to those who died and loved ones left behind. Let's um, just zoom out a bit, because in the first two chapters of the book, you talk about your concept of kind of the spider's web, and then you get into what you call the hidden hand. 
some of the, the people that were involved in this whole process. And right, the hidden hand. We went into this before. Of course, go deeper into your problem reaction solution system. But for people that don't know, what do you mean by this kind of thing? The question that people ask when people like me talk about a few control in the world, the direction of the world, to a very, very clear and specific end that I talk about at the end of the book. Um, it's, it's an understandable question. How could, a few, how could a few control so many people? Not possible, but it is. And you know, when I used to do jigsaw puzzles, which I'm on for a long time, but when I did, I always wanted to get the outside frame first, the straight bits, because then it becomes easier to put pieces in the middle. So when I started uncovering the fact that yes, a few people do control the direction of the world, I wanted to know how they could do it. And this is the structure through which they do it. Imagine a spider's web. In the center is the spider. That's deep in the shadows. You don't see that. Um, and that's dictating events. The strands in the web immediately around the spider are the most exclusive secret societies. Many of them don't even have names, which makes them harder to track. That's right. And as you come out in the web, still in the hidden... I would say, like, the Orsini family that I mentioned before, I have a list of 13 families who allegedly really run the world, but it's not... They, they definitely would that run the world, but they, um, they have a, a major hand in how shit plays out because the pope is the most powerful man in europe the pope through apostolic succession is the owner of all land on earth yes all land on earth look up apostolic succession what the fuck the man owns all all land including us the people so the family that chooses this these popes yeah they're they're a powerful family and the orsini family is one of them they chose two they picked two no about but we don't know um what goes on in them unless you do serious research. Right. These are the Freemasons, and I'm talking about the inner core of the Freemasons, not Fred and Joe down the lodge, you know. Um, uh, we're talking the Knights Templar, the Knights of Malta, Opus Dei, um, the inner core of the Jesuit order, and, and, and many others. And you come out of the web, in, in that, still in the hidden, and then you hit what I call the cusp. These are organizations that are kind of semi-secret. Mm. Thanks to, you know, people like me who do what I do, they're, they're less secret than they were, but um, they're semi-secret. These CUSP organizations, which are organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations in America, which has driven um, U.S. foreign policy in so many ways um, since it was formed in 1920. Right. The Bilderberg Group, uh, created in 1954 at Bilderberg Hotel, it used to be Holland. The Trilateral Commission, 1972-73, uh, created by uh, David Rockefeller and Sabigiu Brzezinski, uh, Jimmy Carr's National Security Advisor, who is very much involved in this. He's not with us any longer, neither is David uh, uh, Rockefeller. That's the guy that said, we must stop Africans in America from having a connection and, um, to Africans in Africa. Which was formed in the um, 1960s, specifically to exploit the environment as a problem to which a solution could be proposed 
And what I said, just a very brief aside, but it's important given current events, what I wrote years ago, decades ago, was that the reason we're having what I call the human cause global warming hoax, people say, well, why would they hoax? Why would they lie to us about that? Because it is a problem, or in this case, a manufactured problem, to which they can offer a solution. And I said, what the solution is going to be? This is definitely problem, right? reaction, solution. Is to say that they must have centralization of power over the fine detail of people's lives and lifestyles to save the planet. That's what's coming. And now, of course, it's here. And so you've got these cusp organizations, and what their role is, they pull together people in politics and banking and business and intelligence and media, is to take this, the, if you like, the, the spider agenda from the shadows and play it out through into the mainstream arena. And at that point in the web, we're in the world of the scene. We're into governments, government agencies, the so-called deep state, which I've been writing about for 30 years nearly, and now it's common parlance, the deep state. Um, and uh, the banking system, corporations, etc. And you see decisions being made, like with Silicon Valley and all the censorship of alternative information, including that about 9-11. Um, Especially that about 9-11 and pandemics. Uh, decisions being made in the world of the scene, but they're not. If you go back into the shadows, those random decisions are not random at all. Because if you go back to the spider level, Facebook is Google. Google is Amazon. Amazon is the banking system. The banking system is the biotech cartel, is the big pharma cartel, is government at... Uh, its core controlling level. And you start to realize actually this web is what's pulling it all together. And, you know, in terms of 9-11, it's through this web that it was pulled off with only a very, very few people needing to know about it because of this uh, system that all intelligence agencies use and funnily enough, secret societies use of compartmentalization. Example, you look at the Freemasons, the vast majority of Freemasons in the world are on the bottom three levels of degree, the blue degrees. That's as far as they get. But in the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, there's 33 degrees, and then there's other degrees above that that most Freemasons don't even know about, where the real deal is. Right. Um, and so, the, the vast majority of Freemasons, they have no idea what other levels of Freemasonry know. And this is how... Um, Intelligence agencies work. They call it the need-to-know principle. Only let people within the organization know enough to do their job, make their contribution, but not enough to know how their contribution fits in with everyone else's to create a very different picture to what the individual contribution looks like in and of itself. And so this compartmentalization means that uh, so many people can contribute to something like 9-11 but they have no idea that their individual contribution is part of it. You know, if you want to hide a technology about actually what it is, you get the different parts made in different areas of the world, different places, different companies. So they, they're making a part, they don't know what it's part of. The only people that know what the technology actually is are those right at the end, the very few, who put the parts together. 
Everybody else is in ignorance. What's this for? I don't know. Our minds not to reason why. Just make it make. And this is how compartmentalization works. And it means that very few people need to know to make something like this happen. So if you look at a, a police force, you have to control very few people in a police force to dictate who is prosecuted, who is not prosecuted, what's investigated, what's not investigated. You only have to control those positions in the police force that make those decisions. All your rank and file police then react to those decisions. Oh, don't investigate him, don't investigate that. And this is how it's done. Very few people have to be aware of 9-11 to, to, to make that uh, happen. Uh, and that's how the whole web works. Okay. And what about this thing that you call the hidden hand? where there are these specific people that were involved in making 9-11 well, in politics, maybe. I call, what I call the hidden This hand, is a prequel to my 9-11 episode, my 9-11 series. I'm doing a 9-11 series this year. I'm going to talk to you niggas today. Within the web, who actually knows... I'm getting my own place. Specific end. Free from my parents, free from siblings, free from anybody to bother me, really. Because once I'm gone, bitch, I'm gone. And the one is going to be very, very controversial. I'm going to be like the Rothschilds. You ain't finna see me for shit. I'm already living that life, but I just don't want to be in nobody's house under nobody's nose. That shit is annoying as fuck, bro. And I tell an amazing I don't story. Like this is part of the way I don't. what I'm going to describe. But fundamentally, it's hard to tolerate uh, my family. Very and hard. Fundamentally, so I don't like people. I like being by myself. Around. I like talking to the spirits um, by myself. In the um, motherfuckers is lost. Century, motherfuckers that follow crowds. These um, motherfuckers is lost. The details all in the book. Lost. A man emerged. Um, a Jewish man called Sabbatai Zevi. And he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Oh, wow. Messiah uh, had arrived. And um, he gathered behind him a phenomenal um, following. And all the stuff about this in the book comes from Jewish sources who know about this. And he had a million followers at one point. We're looking at the 17th century. And he created a cult which inverted everything. This is the whole basis of it. So whatever Judaism stood for, it would invert and do the opposite. Um, and people uh, who want to discredit me are going to say, he's saying 9-11 was a Jewish plot. I am absolutely not saying that. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. And that's why I say in the book, that no one needs to read this book more urgently than Jewish community of the world to see how they've been shafted by this, this inversion. Um, and this cult became known as Sabbateanism. And so if you had a day in Judaism, which was a day of fasting, then in Sabbateanism it will be a day of feasting. They inverted everything. So if you had a taboo about sex with children, Sabbateanism would not only remove the taboo, it would make it something to be desired, something to do. And the way they sold this in this cult was that um, the more evil you do, basically the quicker God will come and sort it out. I mean, you know, I know, but 
that's how they sold it. And this cult eventually led to a point where Sabatai Zevi was in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. And he was given a choice by the Sultan to either um, renege on his Sabbateanism religion and become a Muslim, or he'd get business. And he decided that he would, um, he would, I'm, I'm considering it, I think I'll become a Muslim. But of course, that was only on the surface. And Sabbateanism, uh, and so many were following Sabbatai Zevi, um, followed Sabbateanism within the apparently uh, conversion to Islam. And these people became known in the Islamic world as the Donma, which means to turn. And um, one of the things that I show in the book is that these Donma ended up um, infiltrating the Islamic religion and becoming the Saudi royal family and um, becoming, creating, I explain the background and the history, in league with the British Empire, the um, Wahhabi form of extreme Islam, which manifests as the Saudi Arabian version and of ISIS, Islamic State. These are creations of the Donma, who are not Muslim, but Sabbateans, a cult, a satanic cult, which by the way, as I make clear, and Jewish sources make clear in the book, hate so, Jewish people. But this is how they um, play, you know, get y'all to play, y'all Jews are the bad, oh, you know. Yeah, but it, it, not quite. It's a bit more deeper than that. Your ignorance, you know, it shouldn't really do some research, you know. But my, what I was going to say is that is, so remember how I was going down the tree. I like to use uh, nature as my analogy, the tree. Um, and the tree is Satanism. And the branches on the tree is different branches of Satanism. So there's secular Satanism. There's regular Satanism. There are pedophilic forms of Satanism. Um... Where, you know, it's Satanism, but specifically geared towards, like, pedophilia and other weird philias and shit like that. There is... Man, there's so many. I can't remember them all off the top of my head. I'd have to... That's why I'm doing my comprehensive PowerPoint. But also, um, Sabbateanism is a satanic cult. Like, as he said, but, you know, do your own research. Is a satanic cult no different than um, the Finder's cult that I went in on? The motherfucking Frank... Oh, Jesus. I got hiccups. The Franklin scandal. We're going to go into that on the next episode because... Oh, jeez. You're going to see how these secret societies... How this shit plays out into things like this. With a vengeance. And what this um, Sabbateanism then became in the next century, the 18th century, was what I call in the book, right to present day, Sabbatean Frankism. And this is because of a man called Jacob Frank, who has been described by Jewish sources as basically one of the most evil people ever to emerge in the Jewish community. Jacob Frank 
claim to be the reincarnation of Sabbatai Zedi, in other words, the Messiah, and the reincarnation of the biblical patriarch Jacob. And he took Sabbateanism onto an even greater level of evil and inversion. And um, every horror you can think of was a good thing and to be desired in this inverted cult. And what it then did was, as it did in Islam, was develop the, um, the technique of infiltrating communities and other religions. So Jacob Frank and his Sabbatean Francis infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church. And they did it by posing as Roman Catholic believers, but really they were Sabbatean Francis, occultists. Um, what we would call today Satanists. They um, created Christian Zionism in um, the southern states, particularly of America, and the vast majority, overwhelming majority of Christian Zionists have no idea that that was the case. And there came a point, again, I'm being as brief as I can, where Jacob Frank, with this inverted satanic religion, hooked up with um, Mayor Amstel Rothschild, the founder of the Rothschild dynasty, um, and, and a Sabbatean Frankist. Not a Jewish person, no, a Sabbatean Frankist. Um, the Sabbatean Frankism religion, or we call it cult. And those two then hooked up with a guy called Adam Weishaupt, and together they created an organization called the Illuminati called the Bavarian Illuminati to start And interestingly, this cult, uh, its Bible is the Kabbalah, the esoteric, mystical uh, work of, of, the, uh, of the Jewish uh, uh, belief system. And particularly a book in the Kabbalah called the Zohar. And Zohar means radiance, illuminated, and that's where Illuminati came from. And they then went about from 1776 when it started, infiltrating um, all these different communities and religions, and they took them over. And it was the Rothschild, Sabbatean Frankist cult that created Israel, and is behind, indeed is, the Saudi royal family today is the inner circle of so many of these organizations. And I show in the book in a chapter called The Founders of Israel and the Saudi royal family are linked. Absolutely. Which would be shocking to hear from most people. But it wouldn't if you do the research because in the background, the Israeli government and the uh, Saudi royal family have been close. And what's happened since the emergence of this utter psychopath called um, the Crown Prince um, Mohammed bin Salman, who was involved in this horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi um, in Turkey. Um, they have become even close in the public arena in, in many ways, because they are all basically, if you like, donma in their different forms. And in a book in a chapter called Atlantic Crossing, I show how this Sabbatean Frankist cult moved in on America and took over uh, American politics, not least through phenomenal, staggering levels of funding. Uh, uh, 
infiltrated the CIA, infiltrated the National Security Agency, the Pentagon, and from that were able to direct inner networks within these organizations, think compartmentalization, which together were behind 9-11. And what I, um, what I do in the book, and I'm going to be very brief here, all the details in the book, and there's a lot more about what I'm going to say that I'm going to say now. I have three chapters towards the end of the book. They're called Just a Coincidence? Question mark. Just a Coincidence 2? Question mark. Just a Coincidence 3? In which I simply detail the, um, the extremists, the ultra-Zionist extremists who were involved before, during and after 9-11. And it is breathtaking. And before I start, let me say this. The Jewish population of the world is 0.2%. 0.2%. And if you take a mean figure, because they, depending on how you define what a Jewish person is, mean figure is about 16 million in a world of 7.7 billion. And the people I'm identifying within that community who are not Jewish, they hate Jews, they're Sabbatean Frankists and ultra-Zionists who, not all of them will know about the cult, but they've bought the Israel right or wrong belief system. The people I'm naming are a tiny, tiny number within that 0.2% and within that 16 million thousands. At, at, at that most, at the core. So let's have a look. Let me take you through a sequence. 1979, a guy called Issa Harel, um, was interviewed by an American Christian Zionist journalist. Issa Arel is, uh, was called the um, father of Israeli intelligence. Mr. Big, he was involved for a massive amount of time. And he said to this journalist in 1979 that he thought there was going to be an attack by Muslim extremists on your biggest building in New York. And that they would do this because in their philosophy, also in the philosophy of um, the Kabbalah, by the way, and that whole area of thought, um, they represent a phallic symbol of America and it would break the spirit of America, basically, that kind of thing. Also in 1979, a man called Benjamin Netanyahu organized a conference in Jerusalem and then organized another one in 84 in America focusing on Arabic terrorism and the need to have preemptive strikes on countries to stop terrorism and uh, also he wrote a book on the same subject and introduced the concept of a war on terror um, and uh, weapons of mass destruction also came up in the same period. Then in 1996, uh, uh, an American uh, Israeli 
called Richard Pearl. Oh, yeah. was a Pentagon, at, at a major Pentagon post during 9-11, with other ultra-Zionists, um, wrote a document for the then Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, called a clean break. He's still in Prime which they Minister. called for the removal of Saddam Hussein, basically a war on terror, targeting Iran, targeting Syria, and whatever. Iraq with Saddam Hussein. Following year, um, in 1997, in America, an organization was formed called the Project for the New American Century. This was a think tank. Quote unquote think tank. Two absolute ultra Zionist extremists called William Crystal and Robert Kagan. And in the Project for the New American Century in 1997, and leading up to 9-11, uh, uh, um, were Dick Cheney, who would become the de facto president at the time of 9-11 as vice president to the uh, hapless George Bush. Donald Rumsfeld, who would be defense secretary at the time of 9-11, Doug Zakheim, who would be controller of the Pentagon, controlling the whole Pentagon uh, budget. Richard Pearl, who wrote the clean break <coughs> document, had a Pentagon uh, post. And also in the project for New American Century was a man called John Bolton. What he's trying to say is all, all the men of the cult, were, everybody had their post, everybody was set up. National Security Advisor. <coughs> In September 2000, oh, by the way, this group then wrote to the then President Clinton, urging him to basically evade Iraq and remove Saddam Hussein. This was 1998. In September 2000, one year to the month before 9-11, Project for the New American Century produced a document uh, calling for American uh, troops to quote, fight and decisively win multiple theater wars to regime change in a list of countries. And these are all the people I've just named that put this together. A few months after this document came out, they would be in positions of power in the Bush administration and the Pentagon. And the countries they listed were Iraq, regime change, Libya, Syria, Iran, North Korea, Lebanon, uh, and others, including Sudan. Leading, it said, this document, to regime change in China. But this document said in September 2000, this process of transformation, as they called it, in other words, this regime change, would necessarily be a slow one, this is the quote, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. That would be a problem that? that would justify the solution, which was the agenda. Pay the attention. These people that wrote that came to power in the Pentagon and the White House in January 2001. And uh, the ultra-ultra-Zionist Michael Shertoff was appointed head of the criminal division of the Justice Department, who would then, by that role, oversee the um, 
criminal investigation into 9-11, non-investigation actually. And in September... The non-criminal criminal investigation. America had what Bush called at the time our Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century. As a result of that, this list of countries started being ticked off. And I quote a New York Times report um, just after 9-11, revealing that on September the 19th and 20th, <laughs> a group called the Defense Policy Board, including all these characters, including Richard Pearl, had met to plot the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. This is days after 9-11. This was planned from the start. Then, um, in 2007, a little bit out of sequence, but it's important to say this. A man called um, General um, Clark um, was interviewed on um, a internet show called um, Democracy Now! 2007. And he told an amazing story. He said that, um, and, and, and this guy was Supreme Allied Commander of uh, forces, NATO forces at one point. He was involved in the, the war against um, Serbia, etc. He said he went to the Pentagon days after 9-11, and he met Rumsfeld, he met Wolfowitz, the Deputy Defense Secretary, who was also from the Project for the American Century, ultra, ultra Zionist. And he went down ultra, ultra and he met a general. And the general said to him, um, we're going to invade Iraq. This is days after 9-11. He said, we're going to invade Iraq, he said. Are they involved in 9-11? He said, what do we know? No. What, are we going to invade Iraq? Anyway, he said, I went away. And I came back a few weeks later, by which time America are, are in Afghanistan. An invasion that had to be, from pure logistics, um, organized long before 9-11, by the way. And he said, I met the same general. And he said, I said to him, why haven't we invaded Iraq? I thought we were going to invade Iraq. And he said, the general said to me, uh, it's worse than that, sir. He said, well, I've just had this from upstairs, Rumsfeld office. We are going to invade seven countries in five years. What? And he named them. We're going to invade Iraq, uh, regime change Iraq, we're going to regime change Libya, Syria, Iran, North Korea. It took him a little bit longer and, than five years, um, but... So, what happened after 9-11 that was in that document in September 2000 was all planned, but it couldn't have happened. They admitted it in the document without 9-11. So, what we, um, what we then uh, had um, was this series of regime change um, wars and manufactured um, civil wars. And they happened under different regimes. You see, this is why the, the web is the permanent government. The here today, gone tomorrow politicians just come and go. They're for show. So we had boy George Bush and uh, Tony Blair, another one attached to this web, big time. That's why he does what he does. Um, who oversaw the invasion of um, Afghanistan. And then they lied about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq to justify an invasion of Iraq to regime change Saddam Hussein. Why did they lie? Because Iraq removing Saddam Hussein was on the list 
and they had no credible reason to remove him, so they made it up, simple as that. Then they move out, a Republican and what passes for Labour, and in comes a Democrat, Obama, and in comes David Cameron in this country. And they, with NATO, in effect, invade Libya. Another one off the list. And then they start the manipulation of Syria that started that catastrophe in Syria. And now Trump's come in, Maverick, and he's been targeting um, Iran, etc. All the, on this list. I think he might be starting to just push back on that a bit. And maybe the pennies are dropping with Trump, actually, who's running this show, and it's not been him. No, it's not. So, it, this party political thing is just it's just a, a mirage this web is running the show so who benefits from all this happening what israel benefits the sabbatean frankist cult that run israel the vast majority of jewish people in israel have no idea about um benefits because that's what they wanted all along that's what the clean break was basically talking about so let's have a look at uh, this 9-11 that was the new Pearl Harbor essential to this playing out. How many people know that in 9-11 in year of 2001, 200 Israeli people were arrested in America? For being part of an Israeli spy ring. 140 before 9-11 and 60 afterwards. Many were posing as art students. How many people know that the centers, particularly one center in Florida, of this spy ring were the same places frequented by the alleged hijackers, including Mohammed Attar, in the same period. How many know that some of these people arrested for being part of this Israeli spy ring actually had um, homes in the same street as Mohammed Attar, in a place called Hollywood, which was the center of much of what these um, alleged hijackers were doing and was also the center of this ring. Hello? How many people know that on the morning of 9-11, a lady looked out of her apartment in New Jersey, looking over to the burning tower, the first one, and saw five Middle Eastern-looking men filming it, high-fiving and cheering. She took them to be Arabic called the police. The police eventually tracked them down, they traveling around in a white van. They were Israelis. They became known as the Dancing Israelis. They were arrested and kept in custody for 71 days until the ultra-Zionist head of the criminal division of the Justice Department, Michael Shertoff, released them. And how many people know that the same Michael Shertoff released the 200 arrested in the spy ring? And they went back to Israel. 
These five dancing Israelis, two of which were known by the police to be uh, Mossad agents, said that they were there to document the event. Well, hold on, how did you know it was going to happen? And under the Freedom of Information Act, um, pictures that they took of each other that were taken into um, in, in, uh, by the police were released. They weren't the originals, they were photocopied. They were designed to, to, to make them look as least relevant as possible. But these photographs showed the location. And one of these photographs, including one of the people known to be a Mossad agent, was taken on September the 10th, the rest on September the 11th, which supports people at the apartment block who said they saw him there with another man talking, quote, a foreign language on September the 10th. So he's there on September the 10th, but on September the 11th, they're there when the first tower was hit, filming it, whooping and high-fiving. The police then went to where these people worked, and it was a Mossad front called Urban Moving Systems, which was headed by a guy called Dominic Suta. Dominic Suta um, was interviewed by the FBI and said that they were going to return for a second interview. Well, before they could, he's often gone to Israel. And so, where was this? One mainstream organization, there was one or two others as well, but one really covered it, and then it was deleted from their archive very quickly. And that, ironically, was Fox News and a reporter called Carl Cameron who did a series of four reports about this. They were excellent. You can find them on the internet. You will find them on the Fox News um, website. You wouldn't after a few days. And he told this story, and, and, and um, I tell it in the book, plus a lot of other stuff about this. So, okay, let's have a look. We've got a spy ring. We've got the dancing Israelis with absolute obvious prior knowledge of the attacks. We have Michael Shertoff, who um, oversaw the whole investigation and let them go. And now let's look at the World Trade Center. World Trade Center was owned by the New York Port Authority. And that was utterly controlled by ultra-Zionists. At the time of 9-11, uh, a guy called Louis Eisenberg, friend of Benjamin Netanyahu. He then um, agreed, for the first time in the history of the Twin Towers, to sell it into private hands, sell, sell the lease into private hands. And he sold it to an ultra-Zionist friend of Benjamin Netanyahu, so much a friend, they used to talk every Sunday on the phone. Larry Silverstein, and his partner in this project, a guy called Frank Lowy, of Westfield Moles fame, another friend of Netanyahu, and the person that provided the pressure to sell it into private hands was a guy called Ronald Lauder, ultra-ultra-Zionist, um, major at global level, uh, from the SD Lauder family who was heading two privatization organizations in um, New York that recommended the privatization of the Twin Towers.
Larry Silverstein bought the lease and in his own personal um, contribution was $14 million. As a result of 9-11, he was paid out in insurance $4.5 billion. It was as soon as they got the lease. It was more to the tune of um fifteen billion actually, because he got um, insurance, insurance times two because he argued in the case of a two separate attack. attacks. The person who insured them initially was a man called Morris Greenberg of the insurance giant AIG, who was a friend of Kissinger, uh, a friend of um, of Netanyahu. All these people usually story. But what Morris Greenberg did immediately, he secured the insurance and the terrorist insurance for Silverstein, is he sold it on, reinsured it to 24 insurance companies and before 9-11, and they took the hit, not Greenberg. Um, and what you had um, with the investigation or lack of it, was a desperate desire not to get this into court because then the evidence could be um, put before people in a public arena. So what they did was came up with a, a process of compensation for the victims of 9-11. And you would get a payout if you agreed not to take out civil action. That was overseen by an ultra-Zionist called Kenneth Feinberg, a lawyer, who was also the man who oversaw executive compensation payouts, who got them and who didn't, after the financial crash of 2008. So he oversaw um, the families getting the you compensation. You better be writing these names down. didn't agree, who agreed rather, not to go into a civil action. But just under a, a hundred families said, no, no, no. We're not taking the compensation. We want to know what's happened. I think I saw this on 60 Minutes with him. Yeah, so then, yeah, and, and, and that civil litigation of the 9-11 families was overseen by an ultra, ultra Zionist judge called Alvin Hellerstein and ultra Zionist uh, a team in his team. And he was described as running a war of attrition against the families to make sure that none of them got to court. And I quoted from a New York Times article in the book where they're saying, Hellerstein's just made another decision in the case, which has basically meant that the last standing family in 2011, I think it was, has now said, we're gonna have to pull out because we can't win now, um, the case between um, the insurance companies who took the hit and Larry Silverstein about how much Silverstein got was overseen, judged by an ultra-Zionist judge called Nukasi, who later became the Attorney General. And Silverstein's um, claim against airlines that got him a payout of millions was overseen by Alvin Hellerstein 
an ultra Zionist yes. job. Right, so it's a big ultra Zionist way. Absolutely. Okay. But when I say ultra Zionist, um, I'm talking about not Jewish people. I'm not saying it's a Jewish plot. The vast majority of Jewish people, the overwhelming majority, have no idea um, what's being done. But they are being used as the smokescreen. Because what happens is, as we talked about briefly in our last chat, um, we have, which is run at its core by the Sabbatean Frankist cult, what I call the, um, the anti-Semitism industry and the protection racket. And how it works is that anyone who gets close to uncovering any of this and much milder stuff and talking about it is immediately dubbed an anti-Semite, a Nazi and all the rest of it. Uh, and that's the protection racket. Uh, and it's run ultimately at its core by this, um, this Sabatine Frankist uh, cult, which hates Jewish people. And this is why, as I mentioned in the last interview, if you're a Jewish person and you are um, criticizing Israel, this anti-Semitism um, protection racket will abuse you even more fiercely than non-Jewish people. It's not about protecting Jewish people at all, it's about protecting this cult, that's what it's about. And because of compartmentalization, many people in this ultra-Zionist uh, protection racket will have no idea that what they're protecting is actually a cult, that they actually don't know about. But this is the cement, this is the spider's web that allowed it um, to happen. Of course, you've got tremendous ultra-Zionist Sabatian Frankist control of the American media, which starts to explain why, not the CNN now, which explains why that obvious questions about 9-11 were never asked and people like me just get abused for actually asking them. Um, and uh, so I'll just give you some headlines there with regard to the ultra-Zionist Mossad. Oh, it's another thing, too, um, which needs mention. Um, in this sequence of events from Essa uh, Harold saying, you know, they're going to attack your biggest building, the Arabs, in 1979. Um, in 1987, a security company called Atwell Security, which was run by Mossad and other Israeli intelligence agencies, uh, uh, um, personnel and was a subsidiary of the Eisenberg group, of Sean um, Eisenberg, who was a massive um, operator within the intelligence and military community on behalf of Israel. He ran Zim Shipping, dead now, he ran Zim Shipping, and Zim Shipping vacated one of the Twin Towers at no notice one week before 9-11 and broke the lease to do so, just as an aside. And in 1987, the ultra-Zionist-controlled New York Port Authority gave the contract for Twin Tower Security to Atwell Security. And the man who represented Atwell Security in that deal in America was one of the um, Israeli um, intelligence agents that kidnapped Adolf Eichmann in um, South America and took him to Israel for execution. 
And who oversaw that Eichmann um, operation? Issa Harrell. And Issa Harrell, um, the people that worked with him were involved in this Atwell security. The reason that Atwell security lost the mission, Issa Harrell. And Issa Harrell, um, the people that worked with him were involved in this Atwell security. The reason that Atwell Security lost the contract very quickly is when it was revealed that the president of Atwell Security had used a false name in the contractual uh, affairs, contract contract. He was really a guy called Avram Shalom, who was a major um, figure in Israeli intelligence, who actually um, been exposed and had to stand down in Israel um, for um, ordering the murder of two wanted Palestinians by bashing their heads with stones. So that came out that actually this guy, I think he, he called himself Avram Bendor instead of Avram Shalom, um, and, and, and the contract fell. So the first attempt in 1987 to get control of the Twin Tower security was um, from Israeli intelligence there. Okay. In 1993, which you will be aware of, because I think you were there at the time, there was the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Yeah, which yeah, I was in Boston. Yeah, I was about to go there as my first job at the company across the street, which was called Bankers Trust, and they had to walk down the stairs. And it was that garage bombing, wasn't it? That's right, at the bottom, yeah. So, as a result of that bombing, which, by the way, as I show in the book, involved the FBI, um, and it also involved uh, uh, an intelligence uh, agent from Israel, um, and as a result of that bombing, the ultra-Zionist-controlled New York Port Authority decided we've got to revamp security of the Twin Towers. And they gave the contract to an ultra-Zionist security company called Kroll. In that same year of 1993, when Kroll got that contract, someone else bought into Kroll as a partner, Morris Greenberg, the man who um, arranged the insurance for Larry Silverstein, friend of Netanyahu. Um, and so Kroll and ultra-Zionists, um, out of basically all straight from Israel, had control of security from then on right through to 9-11. And when Silverstein took over, of course, they had complete control um, of the building. Can I ask you about the hijackers? Because we were all told that there were 19 Saudis, I think. That's right. Well, the they were mostly Saudis. Okay. Under, yeah, maybe mostly. Under the control, ultimately, of the that, that's, another, that's another thing very quickly. Yes. Mostly Saudis. Sabatini Frankist control of Israel, not Israelis, control of Israel. Sabatini Frank is gone the control of Saudi Arabia. No accident. And most people don't even remember they were Saudis. They think they were Afghans or Iraqis or whatever. Right? So you're saying it wasn't Saudis, it was Israelis? Who were the hijackers? Well, um, that's a, an interesting point uh, because um, there is so many anomalies about the hijacker story. If you take uh, Mohammed Attar, he was called Mohammed Attar in America, but he was known as um, 
Mohammed El Amir, student in Germany, uh, an Egyptian student. And the descriptions of the personality of German El Amir and American Mohammed Attar couldn't be more different, including descriptions of their height, which seems to have several inches discrepancy. We are asked to believe, you see, that Mohammed Attar was a, the lead hijacker, and he was a virulent Muslim extremist, Islamic extremist, of the, the kind of, uh, basically what's become ISIS, extremist, jihadi. I quote in the book, his girlfriend in America, a lady called um, Amanda Keller. And um, she describes how she lived with Attar in the run-up to 9 11, a place I think was called the Sandpiper Apartments, in a place called Venice in um, Florida. And she describes, and she's, she's a, a white American, seriously un-Muslim. She's girlfriend. And people at the apartments Oh, I wish I had quoted the book, confirmed that, yeah, they, they were together for a time. And she um, described how Mohammed Attar, Islamic extremist, was often drunk. His favorite food was pork chops. <laughs> and he was a regular partaker of cocaine. And when he ran out of cocaine, because they followed him one night, they want to see where it came from. He went over to the flying school he was attending in, in Venice, which was a drug operation, by the way, involving the CIA. Venice Airport was a notorious conduit for drugs coming um, out of South America, etc. At that time, whether today, I don't know. And he went into the flying school uh, uh, with some people and came out with an armful of cocaine, and that's what happened all the time. This is the Islamic extremist that's supposed to have given his life to, uh, to, the, to the benefit of Allah. We have another hijacker called Hani Hanjour. Hani Hanjour, according to the official story, was the man who flew Flight 77 into the Pentagon. So they claim. So they claim. Um, with a maneuver in a big 757 that, as I quote in the book, professional pilots that fly 757, 767, say they could not have done, including this extraordinary spiral that is claimed. This man, Annie Hanjour, was banned six weeks before 9-11 from hiring a one-engine plane because he was so useless and dangerous at flying. Where are you, CNN? Where are you, New York Times? Where are you, BBC? Still today, Brian. Yeah, only Angel, he flew the plane into the Pentagon what you get. You can fly a, a one-engine Cessna. <laughs> and um, this 
you know, I go through the hijackers, or many of them, and the idea that, I mean, look at, look at the coincidences here. First of all, you are, in terms of Mohammed Attar, going to hijack Flight 11 out of Boston Logan on September 11, 2001. So where do you spend the night? Well, you spend the night in Boston, don't you? It's an early flight. No, no. He and another guy um, drove from Boston to Portland, Maine and caught a commuter flight back which was if that commuter flight had have been that morning of September the 11th even vaguely delayed he wouldn't have gotten flight left and we're asked to believe that, that that's what he did but you know that's the story and people think that there is security footage security pictures of Mohammed Attar getting onto Flight 11. No. Guess where, in a world even then, awash with cameras, especially in airports, guess an international airport at that time that had no cameras in the departure lounges? Boston Logan. They say, uh, oh, but I saw a picture of Attar going through security, yeah. His father says it wasn't him, but that, the official story is it was. That was at Portland, Maine. And he left the hotel for a six o'clock commuter flight to connect with Flight 11 at um, 33 minutes to the hour. Um, uh, or, or actually less than that, less than half an hour before the plane took off. The person who checked him in at um, Portland, Maine, said he was sweating profusely and said they're running late. What, for flight 11? He then goes through security, just as an aside, the guy who checked him in said they were wearing jackets and ties, while the two that went through security on the picture weren't. And that's the picture that went around the world, Attar. And people think that was him getting on Flight 11. It wasn't. He was getting on the commuter plane. Now, in the middle of the picture of the security camera, alleged, um, the last place you would put a time code is the middle of a picture on a security camera. It said 5.45 a.m. And most of the media crop that picture, so that's the only time code. You'll see in the book, when you show the whole picture, there's another time code at the bottom, which is exactly where you put a time code on a security camera, and that says six minutes to six for a flight leaving at six o'clock, confirming what the checking guy said. They almost missed the flight. Even if it was there, it was missed the, uh, missed the flight. And I rang um, the um, the head of security at uh, Portland, Maine, because 
in that period, I was calling everyone. I had interchanges with the FBI and the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, and all of them. I, I got her on the phone, she was a lovely lady. And I said, um, why are there two security codes on your, on your security camera with that on? She said, eh? no, I don't know. I said, well, can you have a look and find out? She said, oh, we haven't got them. Said um, the FBI came and took all the camera footage on the morning of 9-11. And she was very surprised that there was, obviously very surprised that there was a time code in the middle. What? And that's another thing. Um, when the Oklahoma bombing happened in 1995, and um, a guy was executed for it, uh, very, very dubiously, uh, dubiously, I, caught, uh, I, uh, I cover that in the book as well, because it's, in many ways, the Oklahoma bombing was a, a version of 9-11, in fact, it wasn't a version, it, 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 it was a mirror kind of technique. The FBI went to the businesses all around the Murrah building and they took all the camera footage of the security cameras. All the camera seen. footage. Because um, he didn't do it alone, he did it at all. Um, he had another person with him who's never been found, which known as John Doe too. So on the morning of 9-11, the FBI pulled the same trick. They confiscate all the security camera footage that had anything on them that would give you information about what happened on 9-11. Do you know, the Pentagon is the most, um, or at least one of them, probably the most, protected buildings in the world. In and around the Pentagon are 85, and we're in 2001, 85 security cameras pointing out in all directions. The FBI confiscated that footage, and we've never seen it. So when people say, did a plane hit the Pentagon or not, I say didn't. I explain why in the book, but anyway. Oh yeah, no, no, that's a conspiracy theory. Yes, it did. Well, show us the footage then. Show us the footage. Are you telling me but of 85 security cameras at the Pentagon, there are none of them that actually caught an indisputable uh, footage of the plane hitting um, the Pentagon. Something else. Um, be clever about it, because there's so many Achilles heels in the story. Who hijacked these planes? Or were they hijacked? They were, um, in, in, I explained why I say that in the book, they were, um, they were not the planes that left the airports. Um, they were military um, enhanced uh, planes that were flown by remote control. Um, and have you heard of something called Operation Northwoods? Right. Well, see, remember Operation I did, Northwoods. Remember I, I did an episode, bro. The knowledge I be bringing to y'all is divine. It's really from God. Understand? I did an episode called 9-11 is Operation Northwoods and Project Blue Beam. The first, that was the second one in my 9-11 trilogy. This is the lot, this is the third one. And then we're going to do the PowerPoint presentation lecture.
Um, fuck. I'm going off topic. But. I already been down the road. We went down the road where we discussed. We went through what Operation Northwoods was. What Project Bluebeam is. How they tie together. And how specifically they come together to create what we believe is 9-11. And uh, yeah, I definitely can, you know, add some more points and, you know, update the lecture to, you know, extend it, etc. Which I will. But that's what he's talking about. In so many ways, 9-11 in 1962. At the time, in 1962, the American military, Pentagon, and politically too, wanted rid of Castro in Cuba. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the military command level of the Pentagon, which was fundamentally also involved in that, um, they ha- um, put this plan together called Operation Ladies and gentlemen, see if you recognize this. The plan was, it was the, 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 the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was a guy called Lemnitzer. And this is not me pulling it out either. I am quoting here the official record from the official American archive. Uh, it was most uh, publicly revealed by a guy called James Bamford, a former investigative producer for ABC um, in a book he wrote uh, which was published in the summer of 2001 before 9-11 called Body of Secrets which was about the NSA and in the writing of this he uncovered this these documents which had come to light here and there before but not as publicly as through this book this is Operation Northwoods this is official American um, documentation. The plan was in 1962, during the Kennedy, assass- uh, the, uh, uh, Kennedy um, uh, administration, just before he was assassinated, and Kennedy put a stop to it in the end, they found out about it. Seems. The plan was for the American military to set up terrorist attacks in major cities, New York, Miami, others, to sink American shipping and this is the most relevant to 9-11 to have a plane flying from a commercial airport on the east coast that would take it in its normal route across at a high altitude obviously Cuban airspace this plane, Operation Northwoods documents say, would be um, would be full of. This is the quote: carefully selected passengers with carefully selected aliases. The plane would take off, and over Florida, a military CIA plane of the same type, painted in the same airline colors a drone 1962 would take off from Eglin Air Force Base in Florida would 
get close to the original plane, so basically the, the dots started to merge, and the drone would be flown on the route over Cuban airspace, and the um, with the passengers, that plane that took off from the airport in an absolutely scheduled flight would be landed at Eglin Air Force Base and the passengers would leave. Note how few passengers there were on those planes on September the 11th for, for what would have got to uh, business time in the, in, the, in, the, in the West Coast. But people did die on those flights. They probably died, but not necessarily by planes hitting the building. That's another story I go into in the book. It's not a, a background necessarily for that. But the point being that these documents say that this drone without a pilot would be flown in the colors of the airline and the, and the um, scheduled flight. When it got over Cuban airspace, they would explode the plane by radio signal. And it even says in the document, and we won't report it, we will wait for the international aviation authorities to tell us that it's happened, so that there's more credibility than we've known. And the idea was, problem, reaction, solution, was to blame it on a ground-to-air missile or a plane uh, from Cuba and justify an invasion of Cuba as a result of that. All these years later, in 2001, basically Operation Northwoods, much expanded, played out in America and justified what? The invasion of country after country um, in the same way they wanted to use that as an excuse to invade Cuba. Another thing is that we take the Pentagon alone. Of course, buildings like the White House, the Cap Capitol Hill building and the Pentagon, they're no-fly zones. Why wouldn't they be? How can you protect buildings like that if planes can just fly in there without being challenged and then do what is claimed to have happened to the Pentagon? So it's called um, P-56. Um, and what happens is when you enter that no-fly zone, especially the, you get into the inner cause of it, um, if you're not broadcasting the codes that allow you into that space, then you will be shot down. And I quote in the book a former defense secretary in America, Caspar Weinberger, who said that there are a, a, a ring of um, air bases around Washington, and if anyone threatens Washington from the air without broadcasting the code, then they're shot down. Another thing, I'll come to that a bit more in a second, but very relevant. Another thing is that um, there's ground-to-air missiles protecting that no-fly zone as well. You mean there's not ground-to-air missiles protecting the Pentagon? I, I, I was approached by a guy in Australia just after 9-11 who uh, was explaining how he has a role in the computer defense system of Australia. And he actually took me to the Canberra um, Parliament building. And 
said around here are groundswell missiles, you never see it. But anyone comes into this uh, protected airspace and threatens to uh, attack the parliament building, they get shot out of the sky. No warning, if, if they're not punched in the code that allows them in there, gone. That doesn't happen in America, it's been shown that it has. Um, and people uh, that, that I quote have said, yeah, the groundswell missiles. So it's suspicious that it might get anywhere near it. shouldn't get anywhere near it. Now, the organization that is designated to protect America and Canada from the air is called NORAD. And um, its uh, um, headquarters is at the uh, Peterson uh, uh, base in Colorado, and not far down the road, about half an hour, 45 minutes in the car, is Cheyenne Mountain, which is its operational base. Cheyenne Mountain, even in 2001, was the state of the state of the state of the art of tracking and reaction to things like this. And they have sensors, NORAD, all over to react to situations in that area. The one relevant to 9-11 um, uh, is called NEEDS. It's a place called Rome in New York State. And it um, is the one that reacts to these things like hijackings and gets military planes in the air to go up there and see what's going on and also to try to force the plane down and if it's threatening um, civilian area shoot it down in the year before 9-11 125 times this happened uh, because what i quote in the book are the federal aviation administration regulations uh, for air traffic controllers civilian air traffic controllers in reacting to um, problems with a plane. And it says very, very clearly in the um, regulations, if you lose contact with a plane, uh, or, or if some, something is happening that you, you, you think is strange, always treat it as an emergency. In other words, you contact NORAD, NORAD gets military planes in the air. So what happened um, on 9-11 um, is that this system was suspended for some reason. And in a period of some two hours while this was playing out, not one single military plane was scrambled that made any difference to events. First of all, for the first week after 9-11, the official story was that no planes were scrambled at all in that period, which is completely unprecedented. And then after a week, the story changed and suddenly, yeah, oh yes, we did, because I mean, not scrambling them at all. It's like, what? Oh yeah, we did, we did. Because the story's constantly changing when they get caught out in the first one. And they said that they um, scrambled planes for the New York attack from Cape Cod, 153 miles away from New York. There's no one closer. And they said that for the Pentagon attack, they scrambled from the um, Langley base in Virginia, 130 miles away. And neither of them got there anywhere near close enough to make a difference because of the time they were scrambled. In fact, we are told to believe, according to the official story, that um, the Langley planes 
instead of heading for the Pentagon, this is after the World Trade Center has already been hit twice, they went out to sea thinking it was they were being scrambled for an attack coming in from Russia or somewhere, which they were used to during the Cold War. So they went out to sea before coming back, and they didn't get there in time. And there is a constant theme of 9-11, of personnel like Cheney, like Rumsfeld, like Richard Myers, the acting head of the military that day, and others, Ralph Eberhardt, the head of NORAD, not being in a position to respond until the Pentagon was hit, or said to be hit. This was a constant theme. They were they had cover stories, lies. I prove it, their lies in the book, of where they were up to that point, where they, where they weren't. They wanted it to be hit. Oh yeah, of course. Because you're going to be a big reaction. There were, the plan was, it's like um, a guy called Fletcher Prouty, who um, was a, 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 a major uh, person of experience within the intelligence community. Um, and um, he wrote books exposing the Kennedy assassination and all that stuff. And he said, if you're looking at an assassination, same with 9-11, look at who had the power to call off the usual security response because that's where it's going to lead to what's behind it. So we've seen all these these things that didn't happen that, that day that um, that should have happened. Now, who's the most person in charge that day? Cheney? Cheney was officially, because look what they did with boy George Bush. They got him down to Florida and then flew him around air bases until 7 o'clock in the evening. They wanted him out of the way. He was completely not even in D.C. until 7 o'clock. No, no, he wasn't. And that, that was purposely done because the, the, um, the Ch then Cheney could run the show uh, without any um, interruption. I, I, I have a lot to say about Cheney, Cheney in the book. Um, but the, um, the thing is, 130 miles away from the Pentagon, so there's a no-fly zone over Washington. You police it from 130 miles away? What? 10 miles down the road from the Pentagon and the White House is the Andrews Air Force Base. The Andrews Air Force Base is where Air Force One comes in and foreign um, leaders come in and then get helicoptered to the White House. Um, they do not have planes on standby to react 10 miles down the road to the no-fly zone over Washington. After the Pentagon was hit, as was, as was widely uh, reported, planes were scrambled from the Andrews Air Force Base to protect other attacks in Washington. Why weren't they, why weren't they before? Because it had to be allowed to happen. Now here's another kicker. I quote in the book um, tapes um, of um, NORAD tapes of the people that were there in the need space in Rome, New York State, to respond to what was happening. And there was total confusion. You can see it on the tapes. This is why. What are the chances, Brian, on that day of all days, that what was described as an unprecedented number of war games were going on in the skies where the 9-11 planes were hijacked 
playing out practice scenarios, there was a long list of them, I listed them in the book, of planes being hijacked, including one scenario, which was a plane hitting the National Reconnaissance uh, Office in Washington, D.C. And what happens um, when these war games are going on is the, those that are tracking the planes have something they call sim over live. These are simulated planes as part of the war game scenario that appear on the screens of those tracking planes that really exist. And there's, there's in one of the NORAD tapes, someone shouts out, get rid of the goddamn sim. Because they were totally confused. And when the reports came in to NORAD, they're all on the tapes, the official tapes, that quote, uh, of the 9-11 hijacks, the response team that NORAD needs was saying, is this real or, or is this a um, scenario, basically? And they were, um, some of them have said, well, when it first happened, we thought it was, someone actually says, um, well, they started the war games early, basically, worse than that effect, and it confused everything. Um, and therefore, at one point, while the hijackings were going on, they had a long list of planes they thought were hijacked, weren't hijacked at all. So that created constant, total confusion. The man who decided that that unprecedented number of war games would go on at that day, at least the person who made the decision, was Ralph Eberhardt, the um, commander of NORAD, who, 12 hours before the 9-11 attacks, put the Pentagon defense computer systems on the lowest level of protection. And the man in overall political charge of the war games, Dick Cheney. Talk about Dick Cheney. Oh, that's that length. Um, and um, one other thing I should mention, by the way, so we don't miss it, when I'm talking about that ultra-Zionist list of people involved. The 9-11 Commission was was run by its executive director, a man called Philip Zelikow, an ultra-Zionist who had written before 9-11 and his commission about warning about Arab attacks on and terrorist attacks on American buildings. And weapons of mass destruction, all that stuff. He, um, he ran the show, and as I show in the book from, with sources, he and another guy wrote the final report of the 9-11 um, commission, or laid it out, including headings and subheadings and all that stuff, before the commission had even first met. And um, the chairman of the commission, a guy called Thomas Keane, actually said publicly that the 9-11 commission was set up to fail. Let's look at the background. First of all, you've had these horrific terrorist attacks in America. 
again, as with the buildings, what you want, surely, if you care, is the biggest, most painstaking investigation in American history. What happened was that Bush and Cheney resisted um, an investigation at all. And then public pressure came and he made the head of the investigation um, Henry Kissinger, right? Henry Kissinger, ultra, ultra Zionist, who, uh, uh, well, basically, I mean, it's like, um, it, it's, it's like uh, putting a, a, a um, you know, uh, the, um, the poacher in, in charge of investigating poaching, basically. I mean, it's the last person you would put in charge of that. And the public reaction responded in the same way. This is ridiculous. So Bush and Cheney and uh, Kissinger stood there. Bush and Cheney and this other group. But it was dominated, even as the mainstream media had, had written, by this guy, Philip Zelikow. Not only was an ultra-Zionist connected to the same network I'm talking about, but he was also a big-time Bush administration insider. He actually wrote a book with Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State at the time of 9 -11. Now, when you read the 9-11 Commission report, it is absolutely disgusting. Anything that challenges the official story doesn't get in there. Do you know we talked at the start of this chat about the, the Achilles heel of all Achilles heels in 9-11, Building 7. Had a big problem. The 9-11 Commission had a big problem. How do you explain 9-11 uh, uh, and the um, Building 7 collapse? You can't really say, although the official story is this, that it was office furnishings, it would get taken apart. They never mentioned it. The whole of the 9-11 Commission report, the third building to four, is not mentioned. Something else is not mentioned on any other At the time of 9-11, uh, the Bush administration had a transportation secretary called Norman Minetta. And he told the Commission of his experience on 9-11 when he was um, inside a bunker under the White House with Dick Cheney and others. And he described the situation with the experience where um, they alerted the fact that a plane is heading for Washington. If, if um, we take the official story that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon, the plane flew 40 minutes into the Midwest before turning around and coming back. Right? And only at the last minute was there any acknowledgement that there was a plane heading for the Pentagon, officially. Um, if you are a professional hijacker, these people are supposed to be, what a joke, you know the NORAD reaction times to hijack. You're going to take that plane off from um, Washington Douglas and you're going to hit the Pentagon because you know you haven't got much time. 18 minutes that plane was in the sky. No uh, military reaction. Anyway, Minetta tells he's in the bunker and Cheney's there. But he said this young man, as he describes, military, uh, came in and he was counting Cheney down about a plane coming in towards Washington. 
like, you know, 50 miles, 40 miles. And when it got real close, Minetta said, this uh, lad said to Cheney, sir, do the orders still stand? And Cheney, being the brutal man that he is, um, reacted, um, of course, aggressively, saying, have you heard anything different? Worse than that effect. Of course, the orders are not changed. And then the Pentagon was, quote, hit. Um, so the orders were clearly not to take the plane down, shoot the plane down, not there was anyone up there to do it anyway. The orders were clearly not to take the plane down. So this story is told to the commission by the transportation secretary in the Bush administration. Never got in to the 9-11 report because it's a total scam to stop the truth um, uh, coming out. Everywhere you look, Brian, it's a joke. I can see all the little legs and the ability. There's a couple questions. I want to get to Osama bin Laden at some point as well. Um, the people in the planes that died, how did they die? Were they in the phone? The phone calls from the planes. You know, there were people that did, you know, civilians that passed away in this tragedy, right? They were in the planes. It's or not. Well, it's a question, a question of where they passed away. Um, you see, are you saying those planes were subbed out and they were well killed? Just remember Operation Northwoods. They were going to land the planes at an airfield. I'm not sure they would want people on those planes to um, to survive and tell the story. Um, and you know, there were war games going on. Right? And in war games, they have actors playing parts in the war games. When I mentioned earlier about the National Reconnaissance Office and the scenario of a plane hitting that building in the war game scenario in Washington, um, they had smoke um, bombs. People at the Reconnaissance Office had script, scripts to, 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 um, to keep to. People at the Reconnaissance Office were given phone calls to make, to make it seem like it was a real scenario. There is a very good chance, I'm not saying this is what happened, but there's a very good chance that these war games and those planes were somehow connected. But those planes were, were landing, um, and um, other planes took over. Because of the sim over live, very easy to lose the plane, especially when the transponders are turned off, um, which gives the, um, the detail of, of, of where the plane is and all that high um, But uh, in terms of um, of that whole scenario with the phone calls, I go into that. Flight 93 was the, was the fourth one. They crashed the fourth one, yeah, right, in Pennsylvania. But um, first of all, at least some of those phone calls couldn't have happened. And if some of them didn't happen, the question is, did any of them happen? And when I say didn't happen, um, Maybe we're not the people involved, or, or, or maybe there's some other explanation. Let me explain what I mean. Barbara Olson was a CNN contributor in Bush, and she was the wife of Ted Olson, the Bush administration Solicitor General, who was in the Justice Department. And the official story is that Barbara Olson called her husband at the Justice Department twice, and they had a conversation. Well, no one's ever produced 
the records of those um, calls and the um, the evidence is that they don't have it because it didn't take place. The story that Olsen tells kept changing from she ran on an air phone which were in the uh, back seats and used to pick them I used them around the same time for him. Um, and you, you, you can call you can call from the from the air through these air phones. And 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 the other thing was cell phones. So Olsen's gone between she called on an air phone, she called on cell phone. Two things. At the at the height she was, according to the flight data that was released to pilots for 9-11 truth by the authorities, she could never possibly have made a cell phone call from that height at that point in time. So, oh, must have been an airplane. According to American Airlines, that's what Flight 77 was, the air phones were taken out or dismantled by the time of 9-11 and 757 uh, of American Airlines. That's in their own manual saying that, Pilots and cabin staff have said the same. Well, no, there were no headphones on 757 at that time on American Airlines. We're on United Airlines, not on American Airlines. Then you um, have a story of a passenger on Flight 93 calling his wife, a man called um, Tom Burnett. And his wife said that. Um, when the call came, his cell phone came up, right? So he's calling on a cell phone, and they had a conversation. And one of the things, as I explained in the book, um, that is a constant theme of these phone calls, is people at the other end saying, it was just incredible how calm they were. And I never heard any panic, any shouting, um, Often I didn't really hear a plane, it was silent at the other end, anyway. The FBI was saying that these cell phone calls were made from these planes. And then someone, didn't take a lot of, didn't like, take a lot of the house, mainstream media didn't mention it, right? Um, oh, sorry, I repeat myself. They pointed out, you can't, certainly couldn't then, make cell phone calls from the altitudes they were talking about. Absolutely impossible. So suddenly the FBI story started to change and they became air phones instead of cell phones. And Burnett's call to his call to his wife, when his cell phone comes up, suddenly became an air phone. It wasn't. And um, another guy called, and, and by the way, at the time, those calls were made by Burnett. According to the flight data recorder, Flight 93 was flying at between 34,000 and 40,000 feet. That high. Yeah. So, so I don't know. No, no. That, that's where the detectives, the pilot, 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 the so it's impossible to train to make it clear. Another guy, Todd Beamer, the, ma the man of um, Let's Roll, uh, the whole Let's Roll story, 
which as I show in the book, uh, almost certainly wasn't said. What's the last one, sir? Um, you know when on flight 93, the official story is that the passengers um, decided that some of the passengers said they were going to uh, fight with the hijackers for the control of the plane. And um, this guy, Todd Beamer, who was claimed to be Todd Beamer, was on the phone to a very zone uh, air flight supervisor, who for a very long time, and she said it was absolutely amazing because that day, air phone calls were going down every few seconds or every few minutes, and yet his stayed on. And not only that, after the plane was supposed to have crashed, the line remained open to Lisa Jefferson, she says this herself, for some considerable time after the plane was supposed to have crashed because she said when the line's broken, you get a very clear tone that says the line's broken. Never broke. And the airplanes get their power from the aircraft, which they wouldn't have done if the plane had crashed. But anyway, um, the cell phone of Todd Beamer made 19 calls after about 93 Everywhere you look, this story falls apart because it is a tissue of lies designed by a death cult, satanic death cult, peopled by psychopaths. And the biggest trait of psychopathic mentality is lack of empathy. Imagine the deletion of empathy required to do that to America, to do that to the loved ones of those people for a political satanic end of killing even more people in the Middle East year after year after year ever since. Um, and we are looking at one of the greatest crimes in human history, certainly in American history. In American history, absolutely. Um, and uh, no one no one has gone to jail for it. And the people that were involved in it, um, in the cover-up, in the illustration of it, are all going about their rich lives unmolested, while 3,000 families grieve for the rest of their life. It's infuriating. It bothers me. It bothers me because it's infuriating. It bothers me because the same people today and the same networks today are orchestrating mayhem all over the world, including every day moving closer and closer to the total control of humanity via AI connection to the human brain. These same people that are behind that, the same people, networks that are behind the um, explosion, hysterical explosion of censorship of 